Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Looking for ways to help your clients become less susceptible to market fluctuations and peer influence? Get powerful personalization for every investor with Orion Custom Indexing, our tech-enabled solution for managing tax-efficient, customized portfolios at scale. Learn more at orion.com forward slash custom indexing. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I am joined by my friend Amanda Clayman, who is a financial therapist who helps people bring money into balance. She's the host of the upcoming Fresh Produce Media Podcast, The Root of the Problem for Audible. And to learn about the inglorious start of her financial wellness mission, we're going to actually start by talking about a $19,000 haircut. Wow. Welcome. Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. You've been on a travel misadventure. We won't get into all of it, but you have been in travel hell, and yet you're still here bright-eyed, ready to share some wisdom with my listeners. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes, I'm bringing a a fun, chaotic energy to our talk this morning. So I expect it'll be loose and interesting and I'm excited (laughs) to get into it. If I could, if I could mandate it, I wish that all of my guests would be sort of sleep deprived and like mildly chaotic. It would be great for rating. It would be great for rating. So we're glad you're here in your current state. Um, yeah. Listen, when when people ask me why I became a psychologist, it's very easy. Um, it's to figure out my own mess, right? to figure out the mess between my ears. But but you found yourself into your role by way of a nineteen thousand dollar haircut. No pressure. I think this might be the greatest story in the history of standard deviation stories. Tell us about the nineteen thousand dollar haircut. Well, first, by way of introduction, I would like to say I'm a person who in general needs to learn lessons the hard way. (laughs) Um, There's a a great quote, I think it's John Kenneth Galbraith, and he says that when when people are uh, faced with the prospect of having to do something different or find evidence to the, the fact that they don't have to do something different, most of us get right to work on finding that evidence so we don't have to change. So what was happening in my life, this is, um, I first kind of encountered what it meant to to think about and use money as a young adult, like most of us do. And I had moved to New York, um, determined to have an adventure. I didn't have, I moved with no savings. I, in fact, secured my first uh, apartment by paying the, the first month's uh, deposit and broker's fee by actually using those convenience checks that come from your credit card company, writing them out to myself, depositing them into my bank account, and then giving certified checks. A little little light financial fraud to start. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't know. 22. I mean, just like, just trying to figure it out. I was determined to figure it out, which is, I think, what most of us at 22 are trying to do. We're taking sort of what our parents have taught us. um, And as I learned, I was taking what they explicitly taught me, but also there was a lot of implicit learning that I had done as a child with money. 
Um, and so I, I kind of was there to, to move to New York and just figure it all out. And I did. But one of the ways that I was figuring that out is I was starting to accumulate debt. Uh, yes, I had a, a nice big jump start on that with uh, securing that apartment. Um, but I was earning very little. I was living in a high cost of living city. Um, money was the least important thing, I would say, in my life at that moment. And so I kept thinking as I as I earn more money, I'm just going to figure this out. I'm going to be able to pay down these debts. But that never happened. So I'm I'm feeling the tension level rise on my financial life. And it was really getting to a breaking point where where I felt so ashamed, like I couldn't I couldn't reconcile. There was a lot of dissonance between all of the good things that I was doing. I was learning how to figure it out and take care of myself in a big city. I was independent. I was excelling at my job. I was advancing. All of these things were happening. And yet I felt like such a fraud. And I was living in such shame because I was so anxious about money. I wasn't paying my bills on time. I was My debt was going up and up. And what happened was uh, my mother came to visit me and I asked her to cut my hair. Um, and she used to cut my hair as a child. I had some very precious bowl cut pictures um, of my childhood that I could share. But she did a decent job. And and so it wasn't that weird to say, like, Mom, can you give me a little trim? Um, unfortunately, my tastes had really changed. Um, I was now a New Yorker and the old bowl cut special was kind of not not doing the job anymore. And so when I saw the haircut that she gave me, I burst into tears and she said, oh, don't panic. We can call your hairdresser, you know, tell her it's an emergency. And that that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back because I had to say, oh, no, I last time I went to my hairdresser, I paid with a check and the check bounced and I can't go back until I can figure that out. And by the way, I have all of this debt. And basically, it's just like the truth started to tumble out of me. And this was so shocking to my mother who had no idea that it was was going on. And and this was the moment of truth, the moment of hitting bottom, the moment when I sort of threw up my hand and said, I don't know what to do. I need help. That started off a, me turning and facing my financial problems and the the emotional and behavioral patterns in my life that really contributed toward that debt. I knew better. I I could have managed, I think, to not have put myself into that kind of situation and accumulated that debt. But it was a $19,000 haircut because, and this is way back in the 90s, so I think the the inflation uh, or adjusted amount is more in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like that haircut was the catalyst. I mean, it's funny, I would take any amount of financial stress, but bad hair, no, not for one minute, not for one day. <laughs> But that was the thing where I, I started telling the truth. I started trying to, um, my mom helped me come up with a budget. My I, I was able to say like, these are all of the ways that I am not managing this. And, and to have an honest conversation and to begin really exploring how I had the lessons that my parents had tried to teach me because they both grew up in poverty. Uh, those lessons, what I had really absorbed with that was a tremendous amount of anxiety around money, that I did not have the tools to manage that anxiety. And so it it was the the kind of expression of that was that I was 
I was so avoidant in my financial life that I was creating a lot of chaos for myself. So that was the beginning of a journey of not just paying back that $19,000 in debt that I had and on my credit cards, but also starting to be super curious about like, I'm a smart person. How did I get myself into this kind of trouble? And as I started talking about it too with friends and saying like, I can't, some of the things that we do to spend time together, I really can't afford to do those. And then hearing back from my friends like, oh, thank God you said something. Yeah. I can't afford it either. And that made me just look around and go, are we all suffering in silence here and playing a part that we think we're supposed to? Like, are we using money in the ways that we think we're supposed to or the ways that we want to present ourselves a certain way? Like, these are all really powerful motivators in people's lives. And money kind of gets dragged along for the ride in those uh, experiences. And I started thinking, isn't this interesting? What if there was a way to look at all of the way the thoughts and the behaviors and the feelings that we're experiencing that directly relate to how we think about and use money and to be able to look at those and hold those those different perspectives um, at the same time and to be able to see how the relationship between them and how those parts of our lives really talk to each other and to be able to come into with that process, being able to kind of like go into our wise mind and say that it's not just about focusing on the money. It's not just about focusing on the feelings. What we really need to do is to be able to to hold those pieces holistically together. And I wanted to be the place where people could do that. So it was a whole career change, a whole life overhaul, really even changed my relationship with my parents um, to have that kind of honesty and have that opportunity to be reparented in that particular way. How, what, what was your parents' reaction to that? I'm curious how it changed your relationship to your parents. I have a less dramatic story, but my dad, who's perhaps the most calm person I know, I remember being at dinner with friends and I was on his cell phone plan. And this is back in the days of paying for texts and roaming and whatever. He calls me at dinner. I, I decline it. He calls me again. I'm like, okay, well, maybe something's up. I'm going to pick this up. I pick it up. And he is like very stern, like in control, but very sternly like your cell phone bill this month was $300. He's like, he's like, I could be like, I could have a Mercedes for what I'm paying for your cell phone bill. Cut it out immediately. Mm -hmm. and, that was, and that was like the long and short of it. But it was this moment where you know things, but when you know them emotionally, it catalyzes a whole different set of behaviors. I knew I was screwing up. Like I knew I was, I knew I was taking advantage of their kindness and I knew I was doing too much. But it was only when that emotion got tripped, kind of like with your haircut, like you knew you weren't doing great, but it takes, it takes an emotional catalyst to kind of snap you into that awareness that you need to do better. So all of this to say, how did this change things with your parents and how did this this moment sort of change things, especially given how they grew up? I, th I would say that it, it was a learning experience for all of us mm. um, because first of all, my mother was just shocked 
she really had no idea. I was very good at just kind of walling off this part of my life and not talking about it. I think also she experienced the same kind of like, well, I thought you were doing so well. All of these other things are going well in your life. How can money be so different from that? Like, how can you be so so confident and competent and achievement oriented in these particular ways and money can still be a mess? And now I have tons of data. Yeah, that's not a question anymore. So I think it, it after the shock wore off and there was a kind of uh, plan in place, it changed our family culture around money to something that we talked about very differently. Um, it it mobilized my my parents to also be able to give me the kind of support that I needed in terms of like, like I would never have called them before and said like, I just paid off this card and then get the congratulations and the support and, you know, add a girl. I couldn't get that support because I wasn't sharing that information. Oh, and, you know, I wasn't paying off any cards at that point either. But I mean, like, like by by telling the truth, I think it opened all of us up to tell the truth a lot more, including my parents reviewing kind of the financial trauma that they had been through and starting to reflect on that and see how that had really shaped them to the point where where you know fast forward 20 years and like my my mother we lost my stepdad in um 2020 and my mom has had all of these these big financial events in her life as a widow and has had to and i think that the the language like a financial therapy has been so helpful for her in in having in her journey of growing into all of these other capacities in terms of like now she's really feeling in charge of of her financial destiny as an individual for the first time and she can see that as a growth experience yeah as just opposed to i've lost my husband and now this is a loss and now i have to do this you know so it's it's really i think it's helped all of us and and that's the I think that's the message of financial therapy and changing our financial culture more broadly. It's, it helps all of us when we learn to be more perceptive about the holistic nature of money and to be able to be more honest about that too. Yeah, I love your $19,000 haircut story because besides being a great story, there's so much ri- richness and so many nuggets of truth in there. You know, the, the ability of emotion to catalyze like a change of, of behavior, you know, the the sigh of relief it is when we all just start being honest about money. I mean, I kind of giggled at the part about your friends where it's just like, oh gosh, can we like, can we all stop pretending like we have money for these $25 drinks? We don't, you know, like, can we, can we do something else? Can we play cards and talk at somebody's house, you know, on such a freeing thing. So I want to talk about some of your some of your work now. You you wrote a piece titled "Are Your Finances a Mess?" That's curious. Uh, that I love, and within it, you you have sort of two primary points that I think are really worth discussing. And you say that that all financial problems can be approached with two, two premises in mind. The first is that all financial behavior has meaning. And the second is that all financial behavior serves a purpose. All financial behavior has meaning and all financial behavior serves a purpose. I think that flies in the face of 
how we in the industry sometimes talk about it. I'd love to hear what you have to say there. Yes, the idea that that financial behavior is rationally motivated, mm-hmm. I think is a big overreach. I think that that we can have rational processes with money for sure. That's one of the things that that we talk about, right, in this work um, is how to think clearly about money. But all behavior, and not just financial behavior, but all behavior is really meant to serve a need, right? We we experience something, it feels like something is missing, that prompts us to to take an action. Otherwise, as human beings, we're we're happy to kind of like sit and and just be satisfied, right? But that's not our our human condition. So we we the motivation, the kind of energy comes from this this sense of ourselves as needing something. And but the the thing about needs is that they're rarely just one need at a time. Um, with clients, I I talk about the matrix of competing needs. So for example, like when it comes to money, um, you might have a need to to curb your spending, or you might have a big goal of of trying to save for something in the future. Um, but at the moment, you're feeling pretty hungry and you're feeling kind of insecure. And if there's anything that we have really been conditioned and taught to do in in our culture, which is a very capitalistic, which has the, you know, its its foundation is capitalism, um, what we're conditioned to do is when we experience a need or a sense of disease, we can identify a product or service associated with it. There's there's something that it it's and it's just it's a well-worn kind of path in our brain. I feel a need. There's something outside of me that I need to bring in or acquire in order to to meet that need. Um, so that's part of the the challenge then of of recognizing when we're evaluating our financial behavior and some of the choices that we make. Instead of just thinking I'm bad, I'm a failure. This is I don't have any discipline. If we're curious about it, we might say, "What's the need underneath that?" When I was doing a lot of my spending, there were the needs that I was experiencing were like the to acknowledge the anxiety that I was feeling around money would be so overwhelming to me that it would Im- impair my functioning in these other areas of my life. So the 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 ego defense, right, of compartmentalization was working really well for me, not for my money, but it did allow me to kind of act in a functional way in all of these other areas of our lives. So the curiosity comes from like like is what's the reason that this is happening for me? If I'm if I want to be my own kind of like advocate here, what's going on underneath this behavior? And to be curious about like what was happening to me before? Or what are the thoughts that come up for me around this? What is the the judge and jury in my head when I'm sort of standing in line with something to buy? Um, and there's that voice that's saying, like, you can have it. It's good. It's on sale. And then that other voice that's going, you're stupid. This is bad. Why are you doing this again? That's a really painful moment to be in when we think one of those voices has to be the truth. But when we say, I'm really curious what these voices have to tell me, and maybe we're, I'm really curious um, in a compassionate way to to try to greet 
the need or the feeling that is underneath that activity. And so I feel like money has this really wonderful kind of um, ancillary benefits, not built into the plan of money, but in this moment of time, one of the benefits of money is that money surfaces, because money is everywhere in our lives, money surfaces all of these parts of ourselves and and emotions and thoughts. And, and if we can be in that curious place with money and allow money to kind of be be a messenger sometimes for us about what's going on inside of us, we have this great opportunity, I think, to remake our relationship with money um, instead of trying to force it just into a certain kind of like behavioral pattern. Um, and what I find is that money often sort of points us toward these opportunities to also heal and grow and and reclaim parts of ourselves that we've kind of walled off because we don't think we think that they're dangerous for our financial health. Yeah, I love that. There's there's so much judgment associated with money, um, both us within ourselves and then from the outside coming in. Read something recently that said the number one fear people had when presenting to the office of a financial planner was that they would be judged harshly. Basically, you bring the you bring the documentation, you present it to her, and then it's like, oh, you've been screwing up. <laughs> like, oh, you're 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 doing it all wrong. And I love this attitude of curiosity and, and everything that it can unearth within us. And, you know, I think a lot of times curiosity is curative, right? Like once we understand, you know, Jung has this, this quote that until you make the uh, unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. A lot of us are kind of on autopilot with our money. And if we can take these two premises that you've set forth and really be curious about why we're doing something, an awareness of why and a deeper understanding of how we're acting a lot of times is enough, I think, to right the ship. You go, oh, okay, well, I was trying to get this need met. I can get it, you know, met another way that doesn't doesn't hamper my, you know, my financial well-being, and then you're on your way. So you know, in an, in another piece, you you talked a bit about your own family money story. In another piece, you talked about family money scripts, and you named four in specific, right? Events, messages, feelings, and meanings. What are family money scripts? You know, start at a high level. Talk to us about a, what a family money script is. And then if you don't mind, get into a little more granularity with these sort of four pillars of a family money script. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, when you were saying in the beginning that that you were trying to figure out the space between your own ears, I really resonate with that because I love the the saying that every every psychiatrist is their own first patient. Hmm. And that we go into this phase because we're saying like, I don't even understand myself. How can I understand myself and therefore understand more? about the human condition. My story really began with understanding what I had inherited, like what what my original programming was, and to think about how people learn, how human beings learn. And, and the way that we learn, first and foremost, is in the, a relational context in our family. Because money has no objective, concrete meaning. 
the way that we money is is incredibly relational in that it it anyway it just it touches all of these different parts of our lives so when we think about little kids and the way that that children learn children are are highly attuned first and foremost to the emotions of their caregivers and that is that's one of those things that keeps us safe as human beings like we are so connected with our grown-ups so first of all what is something that pushes grown-ups buttons ding 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 it's money right so on one level children are going to be aware of the kind of emotional context of money it's probably one of the first things that they're going to pick up on so they may in terms of like the the experiences that they have one experience may be gosh i noticed that my parents are talking about money or i hear my my mom or dad responding to me when i ask for something and saying like how can you even ask for that you know don't you know that that's so expensive so we're getting like identity messages we're being told that we're selfish we're being we're seeing that a parent gets mad or upset or anxious around money so we're kind of absorbing that in these these different experiences and the emotional context of that. So children are kind of picking up that feeling. And I was a really sensitive kid and I definitely was absorbing my parents' anxiety about money. So we've got our experiences, we've got the emotional context, we get the messages, which is like, what's directly said about money? Are people talking about, you want to put your money to work for you? Or are people talking about like, you never know when something's going to happen. And so you have to really enjoy your life. Um, children are are sponges for those kinds of platitudes, which, you know, are so basic they can't possibly cover all instances, but but we it gives us an idea of, of what we think or how we think money should work in this world and how how we can fit ourselves into that. And the last piece of it is the meaning that the child themselves puts together. So as kids are kind of like taking all of this stuff in, they're starting to prepare a sense of what does this mean for me? Like, what does this mean in my life? How am I going to be a financial grown-up given the examples and experiences that I've had? And that's the really tricky one because children don't have mature understanding. So when we get launched into the world as young adults, a lot of times that that meaning that we have kind of put together for ourselves, I, I tend to think of it as like our, our 1.0 money programming software. Like this is what we're loaded with going into adulthood. But then we kind of become adults and then we, we run that program, right? We're running it. This is what how I, I this is what I've been taught and the way that I, I see money working in this world. And some of us run into problems when we run that software. Uh, sometimes that works great. And we have we don't even see the psychology of money doesn't even make sense because everything just seems so, you know, when it works the way that we anticipate it's going to work, we don't think about it very much. We there's no there's no need to because it's fine. But for the rest of us, we're out in this world going, ah, none of like this isn't going the way that I was taught that it's supposed to go now what? Now how do I figure out how to get myself out of this or how do I make it better? Um, and then we get into, you know, the curiosity and the journey and all of that other stuff. But most of that starts with, with again, like trying to avoid having to do something 
different. We just really want our way to work better. I really, I really love that sort of like factory setting, you know, 1.0 software. And it's interesting. I see people in my family who've taken that 1.0 software and some have run with it and kind of kept it part, you know, part of the system. And others have wholly rejected it. You know, I mean, I look at my mom. She grew up in a family that was very thrifty and has taken kind of like resented that thrift, right? It was a family with money, but was very thrifty and she resented that thrift. And so if you ask my mom, you know, if my mom asks you for a Christmas or a birthday present and you tell her something you'd like, you're going to get the most deluxe version of that thing because she sort of rejected that 1.0 software and software and said, nope, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do it that way. But I look at my own life and in many ways I run it much the same as my parents did. So you've got these four sort of pillars of the money script. Can you talk a little bit more about those, the events, the messages, the feelings and the meanings? And then once someone becomes aware of their money script, like, okay, so so now you're you're sort of aware of this 1.0 software. Where where do we go next? Well, so we're we're going to either repeat, reject, or I hope that we could also add refine. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned your mom kind of went on the rejecting mm-hmm. route, right? Like, I don't like my 1.0. I'm going to do the opposite. Yeah. So, so that's where a lot of us land is like, if repeat doesn't work, we're going to just say, all right, clearly the other thing, if we're only looking at it in binary terms, I'm going to go to the other side of that. Um, the refining is the part that is usually, um, it takes more work. It's hard. It's not intuitive. Um, it takes paying attention. And if people have a lot of powerful emotions around money, um, it's really hard to pay attention. Attention gets complicated. Um, and also I would add, we live in a society that is pretty complicit in having people avoid all of this stuff. Like the reason that I went into this business, and I don't know if it's true for you too, but I really went in with like the zeal of an evangelist of like, people, we got to start talking about this stuff and wanting to provide in my, my, you know, my professional role, but also my mission of, of being the place where people can explore that. So it's not just like, Oh, I'm I'm answering some some question prompts about what are the messages, what are the experiences. It we have to be able to, in many cases, take the messages, the experiences, meaning, emotional climate. Like those things are coming in as like this tightly bound knot, and the process of financial therapy or or self exploration is really like, oh, there's a knot. What are the parts of this knot? Let me sort of explore this string. Let me explore this over here. To be able to give this the attention and not just the attention and like rational attention, but to allow ourselves to kind of recapture those feelings that are tied up in this knot as well, to be able to start to get some clarity. And that is not, that's kind of a new concept, I would say, um, in our, our world right now. And and that's the the work that I think is so important is giving people a chance to to see 
to get to know they're not, to kind of find those places where they might be able to loosen up some of those things and have better insight, but also a way, hopefully, because it's not like the process is becoming, um, I am not a, a fully rational human being who only makes like robotic and productive decisions about her money. I'm still, you know, the same messy person that I was going into this. But I also have a lot more self-compassion about that. I can build some guardrails in like on those places where I know that I can kind of get off off track. But I have the opportunity to have like in doing this exploration and doing this work, people can differentiate and partialize between the things that are just like, like, oh, it's quirky that whenever my life gets really crazy, my brain wants me to buy a new pair of jeans. My brain thinks if I had new jeans that I felt great in, I wouldn't have all of these other messy feelings. I can tell that to you, Daniel, and it sounds really funny and I can kind of have a laugh over it. But I also like the reality is that when I'm feeling yucky, I'm also thinking about cool designer blue jeans. And for everyone, I'd say, who's engaging in this to be able to think about and to feel into all of those different complexities so that we can be discerning and not just trying to say, like, I wish I was a different financial person. Like, I wish I was less freedom loving and spontaneous and uh, impulsive. I wish I was disciplined and da, 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 da. Like they're wishing themselves into being a different person. Whereas there's a middle road in this refining where we can look at look at these pieces and be able to make a little bit more, um, I hate to word, use the word nuanced again, but more individualistic in terms of like, this is me and this is important to me. And I'm just going to let myself, again, be this kind of person who doesn't do everything perfectly. And I'm going to put my kind of energy into being able to focus on behavioral change in a targeted way that's going to allow me to still be me, but maybe get me different results for my behavior. Yeah, I love, I'm, I'm taking a couple of great nuggets from our conversation. One is this repeat, reject, refine framework, which I just think is so good. You know, I think so many of us, and I mean, I'm even pointing the finger back at myself and the way I've talked about these things, even on this podcast, we tend to fall into binaries of sort of good, bad, like how can we get better? How can we stop doing this? How can we start doing this? And like time and again, I hear you advocating for uh, sort of a middle path, right? I hear you advocating for curiosity, awareness, and refinement around the edges rather than binaries and good and bad and, and big change. Because I think a lot of us repeat, you know, these behaviors uh, sort of reflexively because they're they're unexamined and it's what we know and it's our 1.0 software. And then I think a lot of us reject them just as reflexively. Like, well, that sucked. Like, you know, I don't want to do that uh, with without sort of understanding what drove that behavior in the first place. So I love this idea of the awareness of the not that allows us to refine. I also had a podcast uh, guest earlier today who was talking about his struggle with depression. There's a man, a middle-aged man, and we were sort of commiserating about the ways that middle-aged men are not, you know, encouraged to talk openly about their mental health and how for him and indeed for me, 
sort of somatic symptoms can be sort of an early warning sign, right? Like, oh, I can't sleep or like my stomach's upset or my back hurts, you know, and it's, it's sort of an early warning sign that something might be emotionally wrong with you. But as you were talking about the genes, it's the very same thing. I mean, for me, it's guitars and baseball cards, but you know, it's, it's, it's the very same thing, right? That, that a lot of times a financial behavior can be a window into self if we allow it to be. And I, I really love that. I'm taking that from this as well. So, well, I did want to just sort of add on to that, that that's my favorite thing about money. Honestly, like I'm, I'm not focused on, on the outcome of what happens then when, when people feel healthier. I'm in that kind of like battle zone with people because I I feel so passionately about money's very unique way of of being a simultaneously a symbol and a tool. So we can't we project all this meaning onto it, but we can also kind of manipulate it. And so just psychologically, like as a clinician, it's it's like the most wonderful kind of like think of like play therapy, right? Like we have this great symbol. So so it's fascinating to me to get into the money with people as a way of, of revealing, like I said earlier, it surfaces so much of who we are that my whole sort of philosophy is like pay attention to your money because that's that's the mirror that you can look up into on a regular basis to have a, a reflective practice just for yourself just like meditation or or these other things like being able to be with money with our feelings i think is such a a unique opportunity like for these men uh or the the person that you were speaking with earlier to kind of notice like huh look i'm having all of these physical symptoms um that are coming up for me around this what in the heck is going on yeah yeah, I I love it. There's there's so much. I'm gonna you know, flying to flying to L.A. tomorrow, and I have lots of nerdy conversations to have with my wife now about our about our money scripts and which ones we want to repeat, reject, or refine. So the the last sort of formal question I have for you before we tell people where they can find out more about your work. A couple years back, I forget which year, but a couple years back, GQ and other major outlets ran this story that was like a really deep dive on Johnny Depp's finances. And Johnny Depp had spent like $650 million and was on the was on the was on the verge of bankruptcy and, and may have gone bankrupt. I I didn't follow it that closely after I read the article. But the article was this sort of really like salacious telling of, you know, how many tens of thousands he spent every month on wine and this and that. You work with actors and, and creative people and have throughout your career. I wonder if you've seen sort of by occupation or by geography, if you've seen any patterns in the way that people think about and, and behave with their money. I love this question. I love it. And working with with creative professionals, which was kind of like certainly the like the the intensive start to my career because I was in agency practice with a social service agency that that served the entertainment and performing arts community. And 
the the life of people in the arts um, was typified by having really strong feelings of like professional identity, um, creative identity, love of the work, like all of these these non-financial motivations that went into their relationship with the way that they earn money. And then on the other side of that is how like the the very practical ways of how money comes in and goes out. And what I discovered is is that it was very hard because of all of this kind of complex meaning about the way the ways to make money and the ways to make money in one's creative field versus like maybe having a survival job. We have different feelings about the different ways that money comes in. And because of these different feelings, we often have varying kind of behavioral responses to this. So for example, like one of my clients who who earned, uh, she did more like commercial acting. Every so often she would get a commercial. That commercial might pay her $75,000, but she also might not work for a year or she could get another job the next month. So the So how to budget that money, not knowing sort of what the future of your money is going to be is very difficult. Um, and what she said in in a workshop was, I, I don't know if I'm rich or poor. I think I'm both. Mm. And I was like, that is 100% true because you don't know if that $75,000 is all of your money or a tiny bit of your money. And so what I often saw with people and, and what I would say is like the way that the kind of um, circumstances that were very typical in that industry I think that those circumstances have really broadened into our our larger economic picture. We have a lot more freelance kind of work gig economies. We have people with multiple sense sources of income, portfolio careers, et cetera. And all of these things kind of when when we're thinking about how we organize ourselves for the present and the future, and we don't have a lot of information, that can be a pretty daunting task. And so the idea that we need to kind of come up with our own system, because if we look out into the kind of general um, kind of like financial media or or typical advice that that we get, we're often told, you know, you start with your income and you you make this kind of a plan. But if that's not the structure of your financial life, you just feel like, okay, there's no answer for me. And what people come up with on their own can be pretty crazy, not crazy, that's pejorative, but, you know, can be in some ways extreme, but we don't know that that's extreme relative to our circumstances. I'm sure that there were many periods of Johnny Depp's life where he couldn't possibly spend the money that he had coming in because it was coming in so quickly. But then if that changes or if you have an expensive divorce, if something disrupts that pattern, we often are then very lost to be able to to revise our way of being with money and to revise the way um, that we need to organize our behavior relative to that money in order to to get ourselves out of trouble. Um, and and that's where I see it's like the whole world has become more like what it was for for people in the entertainment business twenty years ago. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great point because when you were talking about the 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 actress doing the commercial, I was sitting here thinking that was me for for ten years of being on my own. And people would ask me, you know, like, what do you get paid to give a speech? And you tell them, they're like, whoa. And you're like, well, yeah, if you multiply that times 40 hours a week, that's a lot of money. But it's not like that, right? And you you don't know when your next gig will be. Some months you'll speak eight times and some months you won't speak at all. And, you know, there will be a blizzard and you can't make it to a show. And then there's COVID and there's all these things. And like, we're, we're all actors now in a sense. And we're all sort of having to navigate these, like you said, portfolio careers and having to shift between moments of, of abundance and scarcity. And it's nothing we're really wired to do. And it's nothing that I think the conventional financial literacy has set us up to, to be equipped for. It's all sort of based on a W2 every two weeks sort of model. And we need people like you speaking to these more complex systems. I embrace the mess. I love the mess. I find the complexity one of the most interesting things about being a human in the world. You know, I feel like money is where our our inside world and outside world meet. Mm -hmm. And in being able to be in in alignment with our money or even to know what alignment with our money would be to have a picture of like not just all the things that we should be doing so that like our our account columns measure up but so that we're living the life that we feel called to lead and how to make how to make friends with money in that journey um as opposed to to seeing it as either the kind of like fantasy savior of, oh, if I just have enough money or more than enough money, everything in my life will be great. Um, or I don't have enough money. Everything in my life is bad. You know, how do we, how do we manage the complexity that, that it can be both at once in many ways, or because we don't know the future, we don't know which one it's going to be. And to still be able to, to have a I think of like um, healthy behaviors with money that allow us to just kind of hold that frame and hold that inquiry where we are clear on what our money is doing. We're clear on what our sort of feelings and, and desires are that we, we want in our life. And we have a container, uh, like a behavioral container, a time and space container to be able to to do the work of of awareness and integration, to be able to make decisions where it's like, I realize I'm just kind of like, I'm putting my chips on the table. I'm saying this is the bet in terms of like how I think this is going to go. And then we sit back and are able to, to see how well that bet plays out and to be able to continue to make those refinements or those adjustments on an ongoing basis. Yeah, well, comfort with the messy middle is what it's all about. You know, the more I learn about money, it's it's not a savior, it's not a panacea, but it's also not nothing, right? And and sort of I think we tend to gravitate toward extremes, but learning to exist in that in that middle is where we need to be and your work is hugely uh important in in moving us toward that middle. If people want to read more of that work, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, uh, get in touch about this upcoming podcast. Where where can folks find you? 
you it's very easy. All you have to do is know my name, Amanda Clayman. I'm at amandaclayman.com and that's where you can find I have some wonderful LinkedIn learning courses there. Um and and like I said, the podcast information, etc. Um also I've done some writing. You were referring to some of the writing. I don't write very much anymore, but I have a ton of content banked on that website. Yeah, beautiful. Amanda, thank you for helping us navigate that messy middle. My pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.